0: Amen. Good morning, Christ City Church. Excellent. Good to see everybody. Um, my name is Matthew Watson. I serve as one of the pastors here at Christ City. And I uh, just want to say on behalf of uh, our amazing staff team and elders, I just want to say to each of you here, um, whether you've been here for 10 years uh, from the jump or whether you came like 10 minutes ago, I uh, just want to say that, um, that God loves you. And that um, that you are welcome here, and that you're honored, and that we are delighted that you're here. And so, I just want to say thank you to you. Thank you for joining us in worship. Um, we we're collectively blessed because you're here. You're we're blessed because your voice joined ours as we worshipped. Your voice joined ours as we prayed. Your Presence as one in whom God dwells and delights, enriches us all, and just want you to know that that's not taken for granted. Um, I praise God for you. I praise God for us together, um, and just want to say amen to that. So, so welcome. We, um, we, as a church, we're in the midst of a sermon series and a, and a kind of a congregational journey that we've been on called Learning to Live. For the past several weeks um, and for the weeks leading up to Easter, we're walking through a discipleship pathway that uh, includes a series of sermons as well as a curriculum that Pastor Justin wrote a number of years ago, specifically for our church and specifically for this moment that we're in. Um, Wrote it for us individually and collectively so that we might better learn how to live as Jesus would if Jesus were in our place. Um, What that has meant is that we're making our way through a number of topics and conversations, as well as spiritually uh, formative experiences uh, with um, uh, prayer, uh, with uh, fasting, with a whole host of things that we might uh, move down the road of discipleship, being formed little by little, day by day, more faithfully into the image of Christ. We're doing we're doing all of this again on Sundays through this sermon series, but also uh, in our Kid City classrooms. A number of our Kid City teachers have been working have been taking the small group curriculum that Justin wrote and have been um, rewriting it for a younger audience. And so they are also walking through the learning to live. Um, Additionally, our teenagers uh, uh, every other week, biweekly, they are uh, going through the learning to live curriculum. And our small groups they're walking through the material each week learning, experiencing, sharing, processing topics that we believe are central to the Christian life. Topics like prayer and service and testimony. Again, the aim of all of this uh, is a collective shared journey as well as the individual work. Uh, The aim of it all, uh, just to state it again, is so that we as individuals and as a community so that our faith might be strengthened and we might learn to live as Jesus did. Now, I say that to say this. In the previous weeks um, of this series, we, uh, we've considered our own stories, we've considered uh, the ways that God has been present with us through our lives, um, even in the hard parts and the parts that we didn't notice that God was present, He was there. We've considered the story of God that's found in the Bible, the overarching stories of creation, fall, redemption, and renewal, story of God's rescue of humanity and all of creation, and the invitation that's extended to all of us to join God in that work. Last week, Pastor Andrea posed the question to us of of who are you becoming to help us kind of circle an answer that's informed by the character and qualities of Jesus, things like love and grace and freedom, reminding us that whoever it is that God is forming us into as followers of Jesus, we're to be a people that are growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, generosity, that we should be a people that grow in the ways that reflect God's goodness. Today, we are going to talk about the how-to to to get there. I suspect that some of you, as soon as I said how-to, you like sat up, you know, maybe like grabbed a connection card, a pen, like perfect how-to's is what I've been waiting on, open up your notes app, whatever, give me the seven steps to learning to live. Pastor Andrea's sermon was great last week, inspirational, informative, have Greek words in it, but give me the brass tacks, like I need the how-to. Perfect. I'm here for it. want all the smoke. Uh, sorry, I'm going to let you down. My, my hope, actually, at the end of this sermon is that you leave here thinking, goodness gracious, that was a great sermon. Now, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> that's, that's the aim. That's the mark that I'm running for. Because I want you to inevitably wrestle with that. I want you to carry that into your daily devotions. I want you to carry that into your small groups. Because how we get there. The how to, the how we get there is less about procedures and it is more about process, less roadmap and more compass. Here's what I mean. Over the last decade of my life, uh, I have spent an amazing amount of time, money, attention learning how to barbecue. I love to cook, love to barbecue, I appreciate that. Now, first off, let me define some terms for you for a minute. Because, um, listen, th- this you know, not to just air all of my, you know, problems with you here, but I'm just, here's one. For some of you, barbecue just means like grilling outside. Like, you know, hot dogs, hamburgers, whatever, like whatever to each his own, but that's just not, you know, you're not using the word properly. I'm not even sure you're using your grill right, but that's, you know, whatever. Not trying to be, you know, barbecue fundamentalist over here, but... Technically and historically, barbecue is a form of cooking that uses indirect heat, not direct heat like grilling hot dogs. It's done at low temperatures, typically from wood or from charcoal, fires and smoke. That's barbecue. Now, I've read books, I've read cookbooks, history books, I've read autobiographies on the topic of barbecue. This year already, it's February, and I've already read two books on the African and African-American origins of barbecue. I've read blogs, I've watched some YouTube videos. I've left comments in the chat on YouTube videos. (laughs) I've watched some TikToks, Instagram reels. I've attended some of the largest barbecue festivals in the world. I've been in barbecue restaurants here in D.C., giving my thoughts on what they should do differently. (laughs) I won't tell you which ones in case they're watching. I've talked to chefs and pitmasters, all in an effort to make beautiful, delicious barbecue. I'm originally from Texas. And I spent a number of years in Memphis, two of the five main barbecue regions in the U.S., along with Kansas City, North Carolina, and South Carolina. Appreciate you. Over the years, and I know this might sound funny, but but cooking barbecue for me has become an act of spiritual formation for me. During the warmer months, I try and cook at least once a month as a a Sabbath-keeping practice for me. Because the thing is, when you barbecue, it takes all day, Um, especially with larger cuts of meat. Briskets, they can take 12 hours or more. Ribs can take six. And uh, if you want pork shoulders or pulled pork, somewhere in between. And I cook outside. The smoker that I have, it uses logs. And so it's with heat and with smoke at really low temperatures. I'm sort of in between 225 and 275. And I use wood. I use hickory when I can get it. But mostly white oak because it's prevalent in the DMV. And it's decent when it's drier. I get my wood um, from a guy in town. Uh, It's a tree guy. I connected with him on Craigslist of all places. He goes by Alabama (laughs) Smoke. That's S-H-M-O-K-E, if you want to look him up. The origins of this form of cooking, they, they, they vary by region, but one of the consistent realities is that it was a form of cooking, in America at least, that was developed by enslaved Africans and immigrants and vaqueros, those that the wealthy and powerful despised and dehumanized and othered. And what these pitmasters, that's what you call somebody that cooks barbecue, because it used to be cooked in pits in the ground, what these pitmasters did was they would take any cut of meat, especially tougher, less choice cuts, cuts that would be ground or uh, rendered less desirable, it takes these cuts, and over a slow and patient process, it makes them desirable and delicious and a delicacy for the masses. I like that story. I want to be a part of that story. When I cook, I have things that I can control, and then there's things that I can't. I have ingredients. I've got spices that I make into rubs. I use ancho and chipotle chilies. I use cumin and brown sugar, and I use cayenne and salt and pepper and Hungarian paprika and other things. I'm not going to tell you all my secrets now. (laughs) And I have wood that I use, that I told you about, from my man, Alabama smoke. And then there's things that I can't control. I can't control the weather. When it's windy, it's hard. If it's more humid, it's easier. And even to a degree, the meat that I have, I, you know, I, I didn't, like, raise those cows or pigs or whatever. I don't know exactly how the meat will behave over the course of an all-day cook. So I have these things that I can control, and then I have these things that I can't control, and over the course of the day, I'm just dancing with them all. And although I grew up in places where barbecue was plentiful, I didn't start doing it myself until I moved to D.C. And so it was when I moved to this fast and fast-paced city that I began to you know, feel like, ah, maybe I should start moving quicker. Maybe I should start you know, kind of keeping up with the pace of D.C. to work faster, even as a pastor. But I ached for the flavors of home, and so I started cooking. I remember one of the first times that I did this, uh, fired up the smoker. I was living in Columbia Heights at the time and there was an apartment building right next to us and I smoked all those people out of their <laughs> apartments. And as I watched and as I waited during that f- one of those first times, I sensed the Lord saying to me, never forget that good things take time. Never forget that good things take time. I can't tell you how often I have repeated that phrase to myself over the course of my 10 years in this beloved city. When I've gotten frustrated with myself or my circumstances, when I measure myself against others in an unhealthy ways, when I believe that I should be farther along than I am, I hear the voice of the Holy One saying to me, Remember, good things take time. The Spirit whispers to me through the fragrance of smoke and spices. Good things take time. And no matter how much I try and control the process, there's always things that I can't control. And it's in that place that I remember God is in control, and I'm to simply dance with the Lord. My effort, God's grace, circling and swirling. There's a point in the cooking process called the stall, It's most common when you barbecue briskets, but it happens in other spots, too. You see, you want to get to an internal temperature of 200 degrees Fahrenheit, but when the meat gets to about 160, it plateaus. It climbs and then it just plateaus for hours and just stays there. Less seasoned pitmasters, they start to freak out a little bit, and they start to fiddle with the fire, maybe making things hot, or trying to do some other stuff and you know to get the internal temperature to rise again. If you do that, you're going to ruin it. It's going to burn out or dry out, become hard. You just have to stay with it. You just got to keep plotting, keep going, doing the things that you know to do, consistently, disciplined, keep the fire going, keep the temperatures low, keep the smoke smoking, hour after hour, and eventually you make it through and the temperatures begin to rise again because good things take time. Barbecuing reminds me of that. It reminds me that I work with the things that I control, and I dance with the things that I can't, and in that dance, something magical happens. If you haven't figured out, by now, I'm not talking about barbecue anymore. (laughs) This has been a personal metaphor for my own spiritual journey. Slow and steady. My own effort nurtured along by God's grace. As I mentioned, last week, Pastor Andrea focused our attention on the work of God's Spirit in our lives. She led us in remembering God's work in us as an act of grace towards us. God is often the first one. God is the one that, that, uh, that moves towards us first. God is always the first one to act on our behalf. God is the one that loves us first. First John articulates, we love because God first loved us. And not just loved us like first, like in some point, like way in the back in history, but like loved us first in this very moment. In this day, we were met first with God's grace. And our lives are lived in response to grace and love that God has shown us. Our moves towards God are in response to God's moves towards us. Our worship of God is in in response to God's grace that's shown to us in Christ. Our acts of compassion and justice are in response to God's just love towards us. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, whenever God asks the people of God to live justly, to care for the poor, to show compassion for the widow, uh, to welcome the immigrant, to display God's just kingdom, God did so by reminding them that he was the one that first showed compassion and justice towards them, chiefly in freeing them from slavery in Egypt. In the New Testament, the same cadence occurs. Any invitations in the New Testament to righteousness, to public righteousness, or to communal care, it is always anchored in the liberating work of Christ on the cross and in the resurrection. Pastor Andrea cemented, cemented this call to love and grace and freedom and God's love and God's grace and God's liberation of us. This is actually why we celebrate communion every week, by the way, as a way of remembering that God was the first actor on our behalf. It can be tempting to come to the end of you know, sermons on love and to believe that we're to just love more or on freedom and then to believe that the call is to simply work harder at being free. But communion stands as a physical reminder to us that God moved towards us first, that God freed us, that God embraces us and then empowers us to move into the world as those who can now love and embrace and extend freedom to others. Now that was last week. What I want to do today is to build on that work and that reminder that all is grace and to say that there is yet work for us to do in light of that grace, because of that grace. To quote Christian author and philosophy professor, the late Dallas Willard, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is a motivation, it's an attitude. Effort is just about what you do. I could take out the trash and do the laundry and mow the lawn in order to earn my spouse's love, or I could do it because I love her and am loved by her. The thing is to have stopped with last week's message on grace would have left us in the position of believing that there's nothing really for us to do. We would be tempted to recline in the beauty of God's grace with no sense of how to steward it. And so today's invitation, simply stated, is an invitation to steward that grace in your life for the sake of your own spiritual growth and discipleship. The passage that we read is uh, from 1 Timothy. It's a passage uh, wherein the Apostle Paul is writing to a young man that he uh, has discipled named Timothy. Timothy came to faith and was raised up in faith by Paul uh, and by Timothy's mother and grandmother, Eunice and Lois. Who, according to the scriptures in 2 Timothy 1, were instrumental in teaching the scriptures to Timothy. Timothy's now, he's now the pastor of the church in the city of Ephesus, which is located in what's modern-day Turkey. Paul writes these two letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. um, But Paul has also written to the church previously in uh, the letter uh, to the church in Ephesus, which we have as the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. And Timothy's familiar with all of these. But across all of these letters, Ephesians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Paul is addressing a similar issue in the church, namely unity of faith in Jesus. And he approaches this thesis in like a whole host of different ways across the letters, he highlights things like the life of that our lives are found in the life of Jesus. He highlights freedom that's found in Jesus. He notes that Jews and Gentiles are reconciled together, forming a new humanity because of Jesus. He talks about things like spiritual gifts and how to honor differences. He deals with spiritual warfare and the, this beautiful image of the armor of God. He uh, shares ways to organize leadership in the faith community that fosters unity and spiritual flourishing. He, Cautions against false teachers and those that preach for financial gain and power. And he gives thanks like a lot. Like all the time. He's like, I thank you for this. I thank you for that. Thanks, thanks, city. Thanks, thanks. Like he's just over all of these letters. Thanks God for the church in Ephesus, for his friends, for power of Christ in him and a whole host of other things. And it's into this context, this diverse urban setting in a young church in a vibrant seaside town that Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourselves to be godly. Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. Holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. It's why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially those who believe. Paul begins sort of this section, maybe it's a side mission, but he begins a section cautioning against godless myths and old wives' tales. It, it's a, that's what it says in the NIV. In other translations, it translates this as uh, irreverent and silly myths, sometimes foolish fables. It's a colloquial term in Greek that Paul is using, and so finding a contemporary English colloquialism can be tough. In our context, I think Paul might say something like, stay clear of outlandish conspiracy theories, propaganda built on hidden knowledge. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, and in the New, there's a consistent call for the people of God to resist the temptations of conspiracies in forms of gossip, gossip that parade a secret truth. As far back as the prophet Isaiah, God has exhorted his people to resist the Gnostic invitation of conspiracies. In Isaiah 8, God is reminding the people of Israel that they're not to be swayed by half-myths that cloak themselves in fear-producing, enemy-hating chaos, creating truth. Isaiah says this, the Lord through the prophet says this, do not call conspiracy everything these people call conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear. Don't dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one that you are to regard as holy. Paul is cautioning his readers, and he's calling them to center on Jesus. Jesus have nothing to do with conspiracy theories. Like I said, maybe it's a side mission, probably worth its own sermon, but let me stop there. Let's keep moving. Paul goes on, he says, train yourself to be godly. And then jump down to verse 10. This is why we labor and strive, because we put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. Paul is using words like train and labor and strive. He's using Olympic language and Language most often applied to ancient athletes, and he's laying it alongside our spiritual lives. The word that Paul uses for train is the word hymnace, which we get words like gymnasium and gymnast. This language and this imagery, it would have been quite familiar for those uh, Greek readers because the gymnasium was the center of civic life in Hellenized cities like uh, Ephesus. And furthermore, this rhetorical device that Paul is using in this image of physical training, it was extremely common um, in the day for uh, in Greco-Roman philosophers would use this as their illustrations. They would use athletic imagery to make moral and intellectual points. And so Paul is seizing upon that cultural phenomenon and he's harnessing it for his own rhetorical case, namely that our spiritual lives and our spiritual formation, it requires spiritual training. The other words that Paul uses are labor and strive. Labor from the Greek word that means toil and to make weary and to make tired. Strive from the Greek word agonetzomai, which sounds like agony. Even though there's not a lexical correlation, it just sounds like it. And so I, I feel it, Agonetzamai, meaning to strive or to fight or to struggle. What Paul is admonishing the church in Ephesus to know and to do and to us to know and to be about is the recognition that our faith in Christ and our spiritual development in the Lord and our walking by the Spirit will take a measure of training and work and fight and struggle. There's work for us to do to grow up in the Lord. And this work is the work of discipleship. It's the work of spiritual disciplines to help form us into the ways of Jesus that shape us in such a manner that we can more faithfully and fully and effectively and beautifully and honorably and graciously and lovingly, pick your adjective, so that we can learn to live. And not just learn to live, but to actually live as Jesus would if He were in our place. This is what learning to live has been about. As Pastor Justin reminded us, in order to grow and make progress in anything, you have to do things regularly and consistently you want to learn a language you must regularly and consistently work on your vocabulary and practice speaking and writing and listening and Reading, you want to learn to play the piano, it's going to require you to regularly and consistently practice your scales and learn notes and learn songs and try and fail and try again over and over. Want to learn to box, you got to hit the mitt, you got to hit the heavy bag, jump rope, shadow box over and over. You want to grow in persistent prayer, you will have to pray persistently you want to know what it means to walk by faith, you will probably have to place yourselves in situations that require you to move forward without certainty, trusting that God is ever before you. Want to know what the voice of God sounds like? You will probably have to spend time listening to the things that God has said already in God's Word. And from there, listen to what the Spirit has for you today, in this moment and in this season of your life. Beloved, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if you do these things, if you are disciplined in your life, including in your spiritual life, then you will sort of get whatever you ask for. That, you know, just A plus B equals C. That's not quite how it works. Years ago, um, Lisa and I were living in California and we were leading a Bible study. We were talking about this topic, like of God's grace in our lives, but then also like how we, Uh, co-labor with the Lord um, for our own spiritual lives, but also for works of of justice in the community and um, about prayer and faith and life. And I remember during the discussion, one of the women in our study, she looked at us and in agreement, she said, listen, you're right. I notice that when I pray and when I'm close to the Lord, my scratch-offs hit more often. (laughs) And she said, I'm looking, and then I look at the group and they like are nodding, like knowingly, like that is so right. Uh, You know, that sister's, Testimony aside, you know, I'm not entirely sure that's how God works. Um, but, you know, who can understand the ways of the Lord sometimes? Um, but God is not a genie in a bottle. Nor is the Lord dictated by our own whims or, or even disciplines, including spiritual disciplines. That's not how faith in Christ works necessarily. And yet neither is the point of spiritual disciplines Simply to just be better at that thing. I don't want to just be better at prayer, for prayer's sake. I don't want to just be better at faith for faith's sake. I don't want to just know the Bible better, to know the Bible better. That's not the point any more than practicing the scales on the piano is to be a really good piano scaler. I don't know if that's a term, but you follow me. The point of the scales is so that you can play any piece of the piano. It's just to be a better piano player. The point of being practiced at prayer and faith and scripture and worship and generosity in any of the spiritual disciplines that we engage in, even the ones we engage in during Lent, is so that we might be more like Christ. That's the aim, not the disciplines themselves. We don't pray because that's what good Christians are supposed to do. We pray so that we might be transformed into the image of Jesus, so that we might experience the life of the Spirit in this moment and every moment so that we might grow in the kinds of things that Pastor Andrea charged us with last week, that we might grow in love and grace and freedom. Always with the reminder, the caveat, that we are not working for God's love. We are engaging in the spiritual practices that lead us to spiritual growth because of God's love. Don't lose sight of that, of the things or any of the things that have been shared in previous weeks. No single sermon covers everything. Reminders that we are to live in the gracious and grace-filled reality, safe in the embrace of a gracious God. If the spiritual disciplines, if the things that you're doing, if they don't lead you to grace and freedom and love and a deeper understanding of God's love for you and your practice of loving others, then stop them. And you might be missing the point. But there's this other benefit um, to the work of, of spiritual formation that we're invited to, there's there's another benefit to the training, to the laboring and the striving that Paul talks about in your spiritual life. Paul ends this section of the letter like this with these words, um, verses 15. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone might see your progress. Progress, not perfection. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul tells Timothy and the church in Ephesus that their spiritual exercising, their their spiritual disciplines, that they will have radiating effects. Not just on them, but on those around them. Saints, your, your, your spiritual practices of prayer and of fasting and of worship, your spiritual disciplines of protest and generosity and scripture reading or any of the things that you do uh, and practice in order to go deeper with the Lord, they're not just for you. But rather, according to 1 Timothy, they must also impact the world around us. I would suggest that in order for us to sustain in the work of justice, to hold fast to the work of the common good, to continue to walk the long road of compassion and care in order to endure in the labors of love that God has placed on our hearts for us and for the world around us, that we must be routinely engaged in the spiritual disciplines. Our neighbors, they need us practiced in prayer the city needs you Practice that Sabbath-keeping. Our justice-seeking and our peacemaking must grow from a solid ground of worship lest we will burn out, we'll dry out, we'll become hardened, we won't make it through the long stall, we'll get stuck, and we'll try everything on our own effort. It's for your sake, and for the sake of the world around you, for us to engage in these spiritual disciplines that God brings us to. When the grace of God and the love of God are embraced by our efforts, as feeble and as amateur as those efforts may be at times, when those things embrace, when God's love is embraced with our own contributions, we experience an ever-increasing liberation. And that work radiates out from us to the world around us carried along by the power of the Spirit and the work of the saints. And this dance, this dance between God's grace and our effort, it isn't so that we can be more loved by God or more approved by God. We dance with the Lord because we are loved and approved and embraced by God. For the sake of our growth and our healing, and for the sake of the wider, beautiful world in which God has placed us all. Amen. Let me pray for us.